Hey everyone, welcome to Clark Talks, the Columbians podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. This week, once again, it's just me, Damien Pizzanti. Katie Gillespie was out on vacation. Man, I'm jealous about that. And she just got back the other day, but she didn't get to be around for all those great conversations that uh, I have coming up for you with Jake and Will and uh, Ashley and the rest of the crew. Um, Actually, now that I think about it, I think that is just about the entire crew. We're going to start the show with a conversation Jake had with the um, Southwest Washington Congresswoman, Jamie Herrera Butler. Um, They're going to talk about some pretty interesting stuff about traffic and... um, Well, I don't want to steal his thunder too much. Just know that it's a good conversation. And he and I are going to have a little conversation leading you into what to expect. It was pretty interesting. Um, You know, we didn't get to talk to her for as long as we wanted to, nor on the day that we wanted to. I wanted to sit in on his interview with her and ask her a whole host of questions of my own. Um, But if I remember right, the interview ended up happening about two days earlier than we intended. And it also happened to fall on a day that I had to leave the office early. So... Um, nonetheless, he still got some good questions in, but Jamie being Jamie, a, a, uh, a politician of her caliber, uh, man, he didn't catch her off point. She is, she was very on message. So hopefully we'll have her on the show again. I think it was very informative and very enlightening. After talking with Jamie, we're going to go into the Vancouver politics and give you just a little bit of who's who after the August primary. The primary happened on the 1st, um, just a little more than a week ago. And as you know, uh, many will enter, but only two will leave from the primary. And so we've got uh, two top contenders in each of these races. And we're going to give you a lowdown of who survived the mayor's race, who's in for the different open city council positions, and a little bit about who they are and how they fared in this recent race. We're also going to tell you about the awful, miserable, depressing, super low voter turnout that happened this this uh, election. And then we're going to shift gears a little bit after the election numbers. And I'm going to we're going to stay on elections, but just a little bit different shade of things. We're going to talk about the f- Port of Vancouver Commissioner District 1 race that is happening right now. Now, that is a race that's been going on for a while. In fact, you've probably seen Chris Green and Don Orange's signs all over town. Those guys weren't included in the primary, but nonetheless, there have been some very interesting developments in that race, and there is a much larger conversation and issue happening behind those campaign signs that I think you guys should be aware of. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant and a little bit of a monologue uh, in my conversation with Jake. But, you know, honestly, I think that there are very few races around here, aside from that one, that could potentially have as big of an impact on the community of Vancouver. So not to pat myself on the back, but if you guys were going to listen to one segment of this podcast, I would really encourage you to listen to that one. If you're not familiar with like sort of the lay of the land and what is going on with the Vancouver Energy Oil Terminal and so on, etc. And then finally, uh, Ashley Swanson is going to come in and give us a rundown of the good things happening this weekend. Man, there's everything from, of course, the fair to drive-in movies to there might even be some salsa dancing. I just found out there's going to be a Montana Fest in Woodland. Um, if I went to that, I feel like I would be, uh, I might be thrown out re- given that I would be representing Butte, the rough and tumble drunken fighting town as my hometown is known to be. And Missoula, the college liberal hippie campus. Uh, neither of those two places are really 
that well liked by the rest of the state. But you never know. Maybe I'll show up with a hacky sack, my chacos on, and a fighting Irish t-shirt. Or my Butte Rats t-shirt. And we'll see how it goes. I'm probably not going to go. Anyway, uh, stay tuned and check out the show. All right. For the first interview that you guys are going to hear on today's show, um, it's going to be the powerful Jake Thomas, the Colombian's politics reporter, and his conversation with Jamie Herrera Butler, uh, the local congresswoman for Southwest Washington, who... Um, is it fair to say she's become something of a force in this recent in this this new Congress that we have, Jake? What do you think? That's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm still fairly new to covering politics. I've been on the county government beat for a while. Yeah. Um, she does seem to be a pres a fairly effective member of Congress. She is getting she's introducing bills. She's advancing them. She seems really hands-on. She's been working on a lot of legislation, um, mm -hmm. and she's recently had an op opportunity to uh, advocate for people in her district. It's uh... Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that, um, she weighs in on a ton of issues. We're getting press releases from her office quite, uh, quite a bit, but I think the most recent one, and probably the, most, uh, the one that got the most attention, was her stance on the uh, Oregon's decision to possibly, and I want to say possibly, put tolls on I-5 and I-205 um, below Vancouver or below Portland and right at the, the state border on the Columbia River. Again, there is no, we do not know what this plan is going to look like because there is no plan, but she basically weighed in on that. And the feds could say no to this. The feds finally. could totally say no. So anyway, yeah, she, um, Oregon is mulling that plan and then she weighed in on it, basically said that she she sent a letter to the governor's office saying that she uh, is going to fight, I'm totally paraphrasing, but she's going to fight against what she could see as any unfair taxation of Washington residents, which was met with many cheers from people who hate the ideas of tolls in southwest Washington. Right. I mean, really, here in southwest Washington, um, there, there's uh, been, been a lot of talk about this, a lot of, uh, a lot of concern about tolls. Mm -hmm. It'll affect uh, a pretty large, significant amount of commuter, commuters go, who travel to, uh, to Oregon every day. Something like 75,000 people from southwest Washington drive into Portland every day for work. Yeah, I've heard numbers that it's uh, as large as a... Uh, as, uh, it'd be a really large taxing jurisdiction in Oregon. Yeah, it'd be one of the largest. If Wa if Clark County was taxed as a jurisdiction, or I've, I'm not wording this correctly, but anyway, if Clark County were included in Oregon, it would be like the like fifth largest taxing. I've I've heard that too. I've been trying to track down that statistic. I've heard it mentioned that we would be that that Southwest Washington would be pretty high up there as far as a taxing district that doesn't get in-state tuition or doesn't get a lot of the benefits that uh, Oregon residents get. Yeah, totally. Um, but you know, we, the people that drive down there get jobs that they probably couldn't find in Vancouver. But that aside, uh, she agreed to have an interview with us the other day. And I mean, it kind of caught me off guard. I was really looking forward to being a part of that conversation. We'd originally planned to interview her on like a Tuesday, but then things shook out to where you got the interview at like three o'clock on a Friday or something like that. I think it was late in the afternoon. Um, it was earlier in the afternoon. I think it was around one o'clock. I think uh -huh. the, the congresswoman had some votes she needed to get to, so it just worked out uh -huh. uh, that way. Um, we How'd it go? It went pretty well. We I, I wanted to ask her about a lot of things. I wanted to ask her about Charlie Gard. I wanted to ask her about the border wall. I wanted to ask her about health care. But mm -hmm. she did have to, to 
abruptly run off and, and go vote. I was totally disappointed I missed out because I was really excited to ask her about salmon and dams and the uh, the shellfish industry. Ask her about forests. There was so I have so many burning questions, but yeah, I missed out. How did it go? I thought it went pretty well. She, um, I mean, it was our conversation was relegated mostly to transportation, um, but she mm-hmm. it was it, it was useful just to hear hear it from her. Mm-hmm. I mean, her her take on the tolling issue is not terribly surprising. Right. Um, it's not. She's uh, it's it's pretty um it has taken a pretty safe position, but she had some good points uh, regarding mm-hmm. uh, the issue of tolling. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's. She's a conservative Republican representing a delegation uh, that travels into another state. So, you know, it only makes sense that she's going to advocate for their position, which is going to be, hey, we don't like tolls. Right. She's probably the most significant advocate or could be because I was just had a meeting yesterday with the uh, where the editorial board interviewed some uh, Republican legislators, uh, state legislators um, uh, from southwest Washington. And at one point, Paul Harris from Vancouver, he was saying that Oregon is its own kingdom, that it's that really there's not a whole lot that, um, that the delegation, the legislative delegation can do, and that's really going to be up to the feds. So uh, uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler is the uh, federal representative for, who, who most, roughly, most directly represents Southwest Washington mm-hmm. at the federal level, so she might have a very important voice. Yeah, no doubt. Well, we should probably just get into your interview with her, huh, so people can actually hear what you guys have to talk about. Um, well, the first question, so, so Congress, uh, Congresswoman Jamie Herrera butler thank you so much for making time to talk to us on uh, Clark Talks. Yeah. Um, so the, the first question I wanted to ask you about was uh, Oregon's plan to uh, start tolling, put tolls on uh, Interstate 5 and Interstate 205. Um, they're gonna, they need federal approvals to start doing this. And I wanted to ask you, what, what have you done about, in response to Oregon's plans for tolls? Well, my first step upon learning of this harebrained scheme was to send a letter um, raising a uh, red flag uh, to Oregon's governor and to the ODOT director, um, Mr. Garrett, just telling him where my position was and what my concerns are. Uh, This is a pretty... I feel like this is a pretty egregious step. I, I was almost flabbergasted. I almost didn't believe it when I first heard because I thought surely no fair-minded uh, lawmaker would assume that this would fly, that this would work, because it, it, is, it is really a pretty um, bold grab into the pocketbooks of folks in southwest Washington, people who have no political recourse against the the lawmakers making this decision. And so I I sent a letter to them to let them know. Um, But since that time, I have already begun to work with my colleagues here in Congress who have jurisdiction over um, both the Transportation Committee and the Transportation Funding Committee. I sit on appropriations um, and have already spoken with the the chair of the the funding uh, committee on that just because I want to be ready um, uh, to deal with this at the federal level if we have to. Um, so when you sent those letters to officials in Oregon, what was the thrust of those letters? What was in those letters? Basically, it was, I understand that you all just finished your transportation pay, you know, payment package and that an intended um, uh, money, um, a pot of money that you, you would like to spend would be from tolling. Um, and, and the devil's in the details. The tolling would be folks, commuters from southwest Washington um, who cross over and mostly work in Portland, um, but you would collect those at the state line and then use those funds, not necessarily in Portland, but throughout the state, certainly south of Portland, um, and that's unacceptable. 
Um, and I think I said, uh, I don't have the letter in front of me, but my, my, my wording was something to the effect of, and I plan, you know, you're going to have to come to the federal government to get approval for that. And as a federal lawmaker, I'm going to do whatever I have to to make sure that that scheme as written doesn't stand, because this is not fair. That's, that's, par- that's my paraphrase. So with... Um... So, so what would you say to, to someone who says, well, Oregon, it, it's their their state, it's a different legislature, it's a different kingdom, is what I had one lawmaker describe it, that they can do whatever they want with their tolls. And and uh, what, 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 do you, yeah. what do you say about that? I, I agree. If they're tolling uh, county roads and state roads, go for it. Have at it. Do it all day long. You're trying to toll federal interstate highway, and that's where the federal government comes in. In fact, you have to get permission from Federal Highway Administration to do this. That's where I come in. I get it. I, I get, you know, I've served at the state level on a state transportation committee. It is difficult to come up with funding for major projects. I understand this completely. Um, but you can't read just because you want to doesn't mean you can reach into the pocket of someone who has no voice in that process and take their money. I am their voice in this process, uh, and I plan to to extend any necessary pressure here federally to make sure that that does not come to fruition. They're going to have to do this a better way. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board. Um, The other thing I I found interesting is they clearly aren't that committed to to addressing the major regional transportation need, which is the Columbia River Bridge and the congestion associated with that. I thought that was fascinating. If they're not going to, you know, one of their proposals for fixing that was to toll it and then use the tolls on that project, you know, whether you support or don't support tolls, it's, you know, a user fee is a hard thing to argue against if then the person who's paying that fee has the bet, reaps the benefit of the improvement. It, it seems a bit disingenuous to me for them to have said that's how they're going to do it, but then now they're going to use that, now they're going to take that, that funding source and use it on other projects. Clearly, they weren't that committed. Um, to fixing this. And the other thing I'd say, too, is we're a region. Why? I, I guess I'd say I'd implore them not to just split the region. This is a, this is a major uh, socioeconomic and political and justice issue. I mean, the folks in southwest Washington already pay, in, who work over there, already pay income taxes. They already do, co- you know, contribute um, uh, to to the organs uh, to organs uh, infrastructure and to their really to, to helping fund things right they, it's not like they're freeloaders this is a further grab in my mind and Oregon's just going to have to do better um, so let me ask you this would you be more amenable to this idea of having tolls on those bridges if the money raised from those the, that tolling was used to improve infrastructure on that corridor to make it to solve the issue to, to address the issues of congestion. Let me let me back you up a step. I am not opposed to the idea of tolls. I'm not opposed to the idea of user fees. Um, you know, if you're using something and you're contributing to wear and tear, it's totally fair and reasonable to ask you to put money into the maintenance of the wear and tear, right? That's, that's not an issue in my mind. The issue is how and what. So, you know, congestion pricing, in my mind, is another way to say, um, we're gonna we're gonna further penalize those people who work because they go to work during rush hour. So hardworking folks who who have don't get to necessarily set their hours like CEOs and you know startup tech companies. They have to go to work when their boss says go to work. So they're going through rush hour and to quote congestion price them or really 
overprice them, overcharge them um, when they don't have a choice about it is, is, in my mind, unfair. So, you know, they're using a lot of fancy terminology that seems like it was like, you know, consultant speak. That, that I'm not for. You know, if they really want to address the congestion issues, we need to fix, we need to make sure that the bridge is safe and sound. But we also need, you know, I, I would love it if they talk about their real problem, which is between Jansen Beach and the Rose Quarter. It's Delta Park. It, you know, a big part of the issue is there's the same number of lanes. And they've put in uh, an HOV lane, which, okay, I, 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 I don't know that that has reduced any congestion. You know, if they really want to fix it, they need to have some additional throughput lanes. And I think you could... I, I actually think you could make the argument to Southwest Washington commuters who, who go through there, hey, here's a toll or a user fee. You're going to get more lanes. You're going to get faster. You're going to reduce – congestion is going to be reduced because you're going to get to work faster. You're not going to sit there in your car idling. I think folks would, would be very interested in that idea. That's a fair, responsible way to address it. But no, I'm not hearing that out of um, – out of the Oregon transportation planners or the folks who came up with this plan. What I hear is we want to further constrict the flow of traffic so that you don't drive. Um, and that, that fundamentally, that hits the poorest among us. That hits the hardworking, you know, the working class families. Those are the ones that don't get to set their hours. So I, I'm, I, I, so far I've, I've heard nothing about the plan that they've put together that I like. Um, so what comes next on your end? You've sent the letters to the officials in Oregon. Uh, what else are you going to do uh, about about this issue to respond to concerns about tolling? We're going to be um, well. And again, it's not it's not tolling in and of itself. It's it's this is beyond that. This is an unfair grab into somebody's pocket. Um, like I said, I've already begun the conversations with the chairman of the committees and the subcommittees that have jurisdiction over highways um, and set the funding levels and set the funding pocket. I mean, I, I'm part of that. Um, we're already talking about how we would address that, if we would address that in this budget right now, in the next budget, what would be the best appropriate way. Um, and then we're also um, uh, reaching out to uh, the Department of Transportation. Um, if I need to meet with the secretary, I'll meet with the secretary. We're going to be starting with who has jurisdiction over this at Federal Highways first off and going from there. So speaking of bridges, um, so as you as you know, Washington State Legislature voted to uh, to jumpstart the process of replacing the chronically congested I five bridge. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. What what role do you see yourself playing in in dealing with congestion on that corridor, or creating a new corridor, or what what are you doing yeah. on your end? Yeah. Um, it, so I've prime so over the last couple of years, I have really felt like my position isn't to dictate exactly what it is. It's to make sure that the folks in our region have their say at the table. And when I got into this federal office, we were being told, I was at the state level and I was on the transportation committee. And then when I ran for this seat, people in Southwest Washington were being told by opinion leaders, by Portland folks, even by our own um, you know, federal leadership, you have to take this project as is. This is what it is get with the program. And <laughs> I had a big problem with that. And now a few years later, after a lot of work from a lot of folks, we've kind of re hit reset. And anything that comes comes to play needs to be something that Southwest Washington um, benefits from and supports. So my role isn't to tell them what it's going to be. It's to help bring funding to the table when that um, 
that is agreed upon. And I realize we're, there's not going to be 100% consensus in any quarter at any time. I'm not looking for that. Um, but what I am looking for is um, the confidence of a majority of folks in Clark County, specifically those who commute, um, that that the plan that gets that, that gets signed off on is one that's going to meet their needs. What they have said so far, and, and I stand behind them on this, um, is they don't want light rail on the bridge coming into Vancouver. So that's that's a non-starter. What I have then proposed is, you know, okay, Oregon really wants to have a mass transit component. That would unlock more federal dollars in terms of grants. You know, would a bus rapid transit um, connector into Portland system meet people's needs? So I'm very willing to um, to fight for whatever funding streams um, people people want with regard to the project. But the key is the project needs Southwest Washington's buy-in, and it needs to come from the people. And then I think my role is mostly to help get those federal resources in place. You know, there are potential. I've worked on a few different pots, so to speak. Um, uh, there's nationally uh, significant freight and highway projects, which we authorized in the FAST Act, um, and those are uh, typically about $100 million or higher. Um, those grants, they don't have caps. There's, we could also, um, money could also come through um, New Starps program that we also authorize under the FAST Act. So I've been working on different um, mechanisms back here to make sure that the money would be available when that project is ready to make application. So, so you do have, but you, you, earlier you, you say that the, the Jansen Beach, that's a problem on, on the Oregon side, that that's, that's causing congestion. Well, I mean, what are the thoughts? Do you, 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 don't, you said you don't like light rail because Clark County has come out against it. Um, are yep. there any other ideas that you think might help? Should we maybe have a third or fourth crossing? Should we have more lanes on the bridge? Are there any I, thoughts? You know, that, I am not opposed to that at all. I, I think a third or fourth crossing. The only challenge is then where is the federal component? And I'd be willing to work with folks to figure that out. There's a very natural federal component when you're talking about the federal system. So, you know, then making applications for federal money is a natural. You know, if you do other, if you do different crossings, um, it gets a little more complicated. I'm willing to do whatever I can to to bring the, the feds to the table on that. That's my question mark on there, but it's not certainly not insurmountable. Um, you know, Portland has what seven bridges. You know, any other major city who has these types of issues is not afraid to build a bridge. For some reason, we've only got the two between Oregon and Washington. Um, but then there's also, you know, I've heard different proposals. I heard a transportation planner from, he's from back east, who'd done several bridge projects and was a big proponent of reversible lanes. You know, you could, his project, and this was, I want to say, five years ago. So, was, you know, there'd be some different numbers associated. But he had a proposal that would turn basically the center of the bridge into a reversible lane um, that would flow with traffic. Um, that essentially adds an extra lane of throughput. Um, his proposal he put together at the time was around $200 million, wouldn't have even required tolling to complete. So I am very open to good outside-the-box ideas. The one thing that I do not want to see again, though, is the same tired idea to do the same tired thing. You know, basically, I don't want to resurrect the Columbia River Crossing. I think Southwest Washington has spoken on that. So in Congress, you're working on a budget. Is there going to be much funding for infrastructure for Southwest Washington? Well, there's a couple different pieces. So there's a budget, there's also funding, and then there's some authorization. And what there's a lot of moving parts right now. My goal is to make sure that 
these pots remain open and we can, this is kind of odd term, but we can plus them up as needed. Um, and that's these ones that I mentioned, um, FTA capital investments grants, nationally significant freight and highway projects or grants. We have maintained those and kept them open. Um, and we can put, as an appropriator, I can, I can fight to put more in there as we move forward. I'm not, you know, there's no one asking for this money right this second because they don't have a plan in place. So you're a step or two beyond it at this point. But I've, I've worked to make sure that those grant programs remain open so that <laughs> when we have our project, um, there's an easy mechanism to put money into it so that there is the federal, you know, the federal, the feds pony up and pay their share. Um, so I was hoping we could turn to, to health care um, a little bit, sure. uh, just because it's such a hot topic. Uh, so the Senate has failed to come up with a, a, a repeal and replace bill for the Affordable Care Act. Um, in the House, you voted against the, the House version of the uh, repeal and replace bill for the Affordable Care Act. Um, has there anything, any ideas that have come out of the Senate that you could see yourself voting for? So that is literally the question of the hour. The Senate apparently passed something, and they're throughout the night tonight they're working on what they can get out of the Senate. Um, and we're told that we should know something tonight based on what they do or don't do. So I can't fully answer that question until I know. <laughs> I don't even think they know. Until um, I can see what the proposal is. So I'm, I, I, don't, I don't like to make, you know, totally hypotheticals on something this important without knowing what I'm going to be given the chance to weigh in on or whether I will be. Um, I, I will take it a step back, though, and say I believe Americans deserve access to quality, affordable health care. That's a big part of the reason why I've opposed Obamacare is because this, the unending accounts of increased premiums, loss of doctors, um, inability to get in when you need it. Um, having insurance on paper, but meaning you can't even get in to see a primary care doc in our region, um, is that that doesn't work. That's not, the status quo does not work. That is not better access. So I want to leave people better off, which is why I couldn't support the bill that came out of the House. I felt like it wasn't done right. Um, it didn't have. It didn't. People didn't take the necessary time. Um, I know there were a few good things in it, obviously, and I, I, I like the idea of getting something better in place. I just, it just it just missed the mark. I wasn't confident it was going to bring down premiums, which is a huge deal. Um, and and I was uncomfortable with how it handled and addressed the safety net issues. So um, I'm hoping that we do better. My, I, 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 this has been my commitment on this. I'm not going to stop working on this issue until I'm able to keep my promise, which is we're going to leave people better off than we found them with regard to health care. Um, but we'll see what comes out of the Senate. And I, I'm so, so sorry, but they just called votes. They were not supposed to call them right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I have to take a break and go over and vote. Um, well, I, I think this should work. Um, hopefully we can talk again uh, another time. Ab- absolutely. I, I apologize. I, I appreciate it. And I, I definitely would be yeah, up for doing this again. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Congresswoman. Yeah, absolutely. Take All care. Right. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, now let's switch gears to the local level. And you guys may may or may not know about this. In fact, I'm willing to bet that a lot of you probably don't. But there was an election just a few weeks ago. Not even a week ago. What, like a week ago? Is that right? It was August 1st. And it was exactly a week ago. Yeah, exactly a week ago today as, as of the time of this recording. And man, if... Uh, 
if there was any, if, if there was ever anything to shake your confidence in democracy, it might be voter turnout during primary elections. Yeah, this was the lowest voter turnout of any primary election stretching before 2001. Um, I, so I talked to Greg Kimsey, the auditor, and he was telling me that he looked as far back as 2001, and it's probably further back than that, but uh, he, you know, we weren't willing to spend that much time. Time began in 2001. <laughs> For those of you that didn't recognize that first voice, that is the voice of our mighty intern, Will Campbell. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. So you covered the city's election, right? Yes, I did. Okay. So let's just say, let's let that number stick out one more time. What was the voter turnout in this election? It, it was, it's about 20%. I just pulled the numbers, the most recent numbers. There was, um, according to the auditor's website, there's 238,855 registered voters uh -huh. in um, Clark County. And the ballots um, that they've counted so far is 47,462. So, and they have a, a turnout of about 20%. That's crazy. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of reasons why that's happened. And, and mainly it's because it's a primary election. And so you know, people aren't actually voting in the candidate. It's just sort of a narrowing down process. Yeah, totally. It's a whittling. And I think the other thing on top of that, too, it's like these vote, this election, um, I hate to use the word mundane, but there's not any like big, there's not any big powerful names really on this, aside from a few of the uh, faces that have been around in the halls of politics pretty regularly. And I think just a lot of people aren't feeling the impact of this election. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. And I actually talked to a WSU professor from, from the Vancouver campus. Um, she, um, she studies political science and, and she was telling me that these, these, uh, these odd year elections, um, you know, they just, they just get lower vo voter turnout because there aren't any p uh, partisan elections. So yeah. everybody running is just nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't draw the, the Republican and the Democrat mm -hmm. battles that you normally see. Yeah, and, so you know, I, with I, it makes me sad, but I think with local politics, there's just like a, a, people are much more cavalier about it and don't really feel that engaged and don't seem to really care, which is crazy to me because local politics have much greater effect on people's lives than national politics. For the record, I want to point out that I'm a total hypocrite for saying that because I didn't vote in this last election either. Well, you're you're uh, reporting on it in a sense, so mm -hmm. I think I think you're uh, you're in the clear there because it it may be um, against your Katie and ethics I have, to Katie and I have argued over this yeah. in previous podcasts where I have said in the past that like part of the reason why I don't vote is because I'm very concerned about my own biases um, getting filtered into my reporting as it is, mm -hmm. and I don't want to become invested in a campaign and begin cast and be thinking about who I'm going to vote for and run the risk of that influencing how I cover stories. Right. I think I think that's that's valid. I hope Absolutely. so. I could just be, but at the same time, isn't there like weight to the argument that we as reporters, it is our job to know our community so well that we are better informed about who these people are and what they stand for than maybe the average citizen would be. Therefore, it is a much, it is much more uh, important that people like us actually cast ballots. Sure. But I think if you can do your reporting, it's such a good job that you can get at least one more voter to cast a ballot, there then, then that'll make up for there your, for your misvote. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, and getting back to the record low voter, uh, voting for this election, we're just, we're right off the, a presidential election. 
and f between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and a lot of people registered to vote specifically for that. And yeah. so we see a lot of people who only vote in presidential elections, and they're still, re you know, they're still el eligible to vote for this election, but um, the numbers are, are a little bit skewed in, because of that. I could see that. I could see that. Um, I just want to add like a caveat to that, that I saw a story this morning that said that if, if I didn't vote was a candidate, it would have been an overwhelming landslide in the 2016 election. It would have only lost in like four states, something crazy. But that aside, let's talk about some of these, these elections that did matter. And not to say that all the uh, school districts didn't and all those school board races weren't important, because they are. But I think the biggest one that I want to talk about right now is the city. So who won in the city? How did it go? Who are we going to see make it to the August, or I mean, what am I saying, the November ballot? So we had uh, the race for the city of Vancouver mayor, and then we had two city council positions up for grabs. Um, and so it, when just focusing on the mayoral election, uh, we had uh, current city councilor Ann McInerney Ogle. Uh, she really swept the, the race. Um, she she got about 63% of the votes, and the second place for that one was Stephen Cox. Um, he's, he's a Republican. Um, he had served a long time in the military, and um, they are pretty different characters. Yeah, too, they are. They? What, what can you guys tell me about the, the, the personalities, the, the issues, and how, the, how these two maybe stand in contrast to one another? Um, well, Anne McCurney-Ogle, she's, um, she's a member of city council. She's yeah, long time. Uh, she's been just really involved in the community. She's mm -hmm. serves, you know, she's volunteers for a lot of stuff. Uh, I had one, some one source describe her as Vancouver's grandma. Like she <laughs> makes pies and, and cakes and shows up to events and. And she's very nice. She's yeah, she's, nice. it's nice. hard to say that she's not. Yeah, she's very nice. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, she's a very pleasant person. Um, <laughs> Uh, Stephen Cox, you know, he has this um, uh, career military. Um, he uh, he's getting a lot of support from the local Republican establishment. Mm -hmm. He has backing of the Republican Party mm -hmm. as well as some uh, pretty significant figures, elected officials from the mm -hmm. Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, Anne McCurney Ogle, she is she's on city council, so she's really been on board with a lot of the recent initiatives, like the mm -hmm. housing levy, mm -hmm. the development of the waterfront. Um, and Stephen Cox is very much an outsider. I think it's fair to call him that. He's never oh. run for political office, and and haven't they kind of been setting? As I've seen it from the outside watching this race, it's been kind of set up as like uh, or people are sort of painting it as like the the city liberal type versus the like the conservative republican type is that is that a fair some fair assessment what do you guys think i think it's e it's easy to think in that mindset that sort of black and white mindset but mm -hmm. um uh you know i think these two would overlap uh, for, with uh, some issues um you know i think parking is a, a big issue that both of them are concerned about mm -hmm. um, um, Anne McInerney Ogle. She just she just voted against um, the um, accessory dwelling unit, which a, a big issue from that was um, reducing parking in parking in neighborhoods. In, in right? neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think I think Stephen Cox would have voted against that one too. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I talked to I was talking to Stephen uh, just the other day, and he was he was saying how. A lot of people, they don't want Vancouver to turn into the next Portland, and they don't want these huge parking issues and these huge these huge homeless issues. And um, I think Stephen Cox, he's, he's really on board for trying to keep 
Vancouver, a, you know, a small city where there aren't a lot of huge um, overpopulation issues and things like that. Sounds like this guy needs to uh, build a wall around the city <laughs> and make sure everybody has permission from somebody who already lives here to come in. Because, man, as you grow, these things are just a fact of life. Mm -hmm. So, and Stephen Cobb, he's for the third uh, building of the third bridge and a, a lot of these things that a lot of the Republicans in the community have really been on board. He's also been really critical of the housing levy, going so far as to say that it was a fraud um, that was brought upon the, the voters of Vancouver, saying that the way that the taxes were, can, were presented um, were, was fallacious and that it, was, it amounted to a fraud. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. Well, um, talk a little bit, Will, if you can. We, we were off mic just a minute ago talking about the, the precinct results of this race, but you had some pretty interesting observations from that. What can you tell us? Yeah, so a precinct is basically a small chunk of the city, and mm -hmm. they're something like... They're like little voting blocks. They're, tiny, right? they're like tiny little elections within the city of Vancouver. Yeah. And you can see different trends with them, but... Um, they're, they are sort of useless. They don't really mean anything, but but Cox was a he was the Republican chair in one in his own precinct, right? Right. So when the initial when the initial results came out, uh, Cox was only winning in one precinct, and there's more than I, I think there are about a hundred precincts. I I'm not exactly sure, but there are, there are a lot of precincts, and mm -hmm. Cox had only been winning in one of them, and in that one precinct, he was winning by one vote, and it turns out that he actually is the precinct officer for the Republican Party in that precinct. Wow. So his single ballot was the only ballot that was giving him the only precinct lead. Wow. But after the after the results came in on the second day, that was that was wiped out too. Oh, really? So he so lost he, in his own precinct. He lost in his own precinct and he lost in every single precinct and that was the same for the city council position number one, mm -hmm. Scott Campbell had won in every single precinct. Who I feel like we need to clarify is not the publisher of the Columbia. And yeah. Not related to you. Yes, again, Scott Campbell. <laughs> There's not, been a lot of confusion. The publisher is not running <laughs> yeah. city council. I When he first announced, I can't tell you guys how many emails and text messages I got from people like, what's the guy from the Columbia doing running <laughs> the city council? So, we need to have some more names for people around here. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, totally. So that's been so confusing yeah it has been why couldn't he should have thrown in a middle initial in there why couldn't he have gone like his middle his middle name is scott his first name oh, is actually really? james oh really? <laughs> yeah do you think he was trying to bank off of your family no he's been mission he's down? been in the community for a really long time right, um he, yeah right. he's lived here for a long time gone by scott so, so. gotcha so anyway Scott Campbell and um, so he came out on he had the overwhelming votes period like if this would have been the general he would have won uh, yes absolutely and the second place for that was Maureen McGoldrick which Jake you and I had a pretty interesting experience uh, trying to get a hold of her yeah I remember on election night we were covering the um, the, the results and so, um, hold on and if I I, I want to be clear this is the seat that uh, Jack Berkman is vacating right? yes That's Jack right. Jack councillor uh, city councilman Jack Berkman is vacating this seat mm -hmm. and so it's um, right now it's between Scott Campbell and Maureen McGoldrick it was a pretty lopsided results mm -hmm. uh, Scott Campbell got fifty four uh, percent of the vote and Maureen McGoldrick got a sixteen percent of the vote so you guys had a hard time getting in touch with we, her well we did on the on the night of the election um, I was we went out out to the uh, the county building where they announced the the official results and I had several people saying who is Maureen McGoldrick like um, nobody knew who she was um, total mystery 
Oh, she hasn't. Uh, she had been to one community event, uh, the League of Women Voters, and she she talked a little bit. Um, and you know, she's a retired attorney. She mm-hmm. worked as a computer programmer for a while. She served as a pro tem judge. She's in a smart County. lady, clearly. She is. She is. Mm-hmm. But she just she doesn't really have a community presence, and we had a very hard time getting hold of her. Really. We did. Because well, on election night, I kept calling, wanted to get comment from her, so I was calling the cell phone, or the, not, the, the, not the cell phone, but the phone number on her PDC, her public disclosure forms. And it was a yeah. 503 number, and it sounded oh. like it was going to a landline. It sounded like it was this really robotic voice saying, please leave a message. Uh-huh. Uh, I could not, that did not work. I emailed her, called her again, and just could not get in touch with her. Um, her address is really near, is right, almost right next door to the Columbian. Yeah, didn't you guys try to walk up there the other day to get in touch with her? Yeah, we just <laughs> wanted to talk to her. We really, and we still do want to talk to you, Maureen McGoldrick. This is shoe leather reporting. But that was right a, here. no, that was um, a really interesting story. It's kind of a long story. We could tell it if you wanted us to. That's not that long. Let's tell it. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm all, right. all ears. Do you mind if I... No, take the mic. So we found out that Maureen's, Maureen lives fairly close to the Columbian building, and we've been calling and leaving emails, um, and we just hadn't heard anything from her. And so we decided to go and go up to the apartment complex and look at the electronic directory outside the building and, and find her name and ring her. And, you know, we just wanted to do everything that we could to just try to get a hold of her just because, you know, people want to see who, who this person is. I wanted to ask her how she did so well because she didn't campaign. It looked like, I don't know how she campaigned or what her strategy was. She didn't raise any money. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew who she was that I talked to. So I just wanted to know how, what her strategy was because like, it's a pretty good one. <laughs> so, and she also didn't submit a picture for the, for the voters pamphlet. Yeah, so we don't even know what we she looks like. like. It's... <laughs> Well, we do now. We, we watch the, the League of Women Voters Forum, right. so we do have an image of her. And we, we met, we did a meeting her, so we know what she looks like. That sounds like a Bigfoot hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jake and I go up to the apartment complex, and we're flipping through the directory, which has tons of names on it. It takes about five minutes for me to go through the whole thing. And we don't see McGoldrick. We don't see McGoldrick anywhere. And we have her apartment number, and so we go through it again to try to find the apartment number with a different name listed. And that the number's not even listed. So we have to result to so another do, tactic. We go to the smokers. We go to the, They have a smoking corner outside of her building. And so we just walked up to him and said, Hey, here's no Marie McGoldrick with a Columbia. We want to talk to her about how she's uh, about her good night on election night and how she did it. And we, we did meet uh, one of her neighbors, and she spoke really highly of her, said she was very you know quiet and intelligent and said really nice things about her. And she was nice enough to lead us into the building and brought us right to her apartment, and we knocked at her door, and there she was. So, so we knocked on her door, and the door opens, and Maureen pokes her head out from around the corner of the door. And, um, you know, we start talking to her a little bit, but she's, she's pretty reluctant to talk to us. Um, and she, she just wants a phone number and she'll call us later because, uh, she, she's not ready to talk. It's, I got the sense that she's a late riser, that she had just woken up pretty recently. Right. And so, um, uh, yeah, we're giving her her number and we're trying to ask her some questions. Meanwhile, you know, are you surprised with the results? Oh no, you know, I'm not too surprised. Um, but you know, we really weren't be, we weren't able to get a lot of information out of her. Man, somewhere... 
somewhere in the great beyond in journalism heaven, Edward R. Murrow and Susan Sontag and all the other greats are smiling down on you guys for that hard work. <laughs> well, good for her. God, that is, that is very interesting. Well, so for the, the position three, the third and final seat open for the city council, who do we have on there? So we have Linda Glover, who gained about 62% of the votes, and then Michelle Beardshear got about 22% of the votes. And Linda is a... What do we know about these guys? So <clears throat> Linda works with the nonprofit called... Divine Consign, I think it is. It's a, it's a nonprofit oh, downtown. Right. sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, and she's pretty involved with the community. She's on the, she works with the chamber of commerce and, and, um, does a lot of things with that. Oh, downtown Vancouver business. Right. Gotcha. Stuff. And she's, she's run previously oh, unsuccessfully she? for city she, council. She came out on top on this one. Yeah. Yes. She came out on top. 61%, which I feel like is misleading because that's 12,000 votes. Yeah. So. That's, that's right. True. And with, uh, turnout being so low, I mean, who, I mean, these numbers could be, if turnout increases significantly for the the general, I mean, these numbers could be really, really different. I mean, there's oh, there's yeah. races I've covered in the past in Washington where some, it looked like somebody was going to win, but then mm -hmm. there's more turnout, and then it completely changed yeah, you how know, it worked out. I heard the, the presidential election was something like that, too. Yeah, yeah, I think there was something like that, too. It's, yeah. So you never know. If you, if you just get the right people to show up, I think that's yeah. really what a lot of campaigning is about. It's just getting the right people to show up and vote. Totally. So what about the uh, the second candidate? Who Who is that? And uh, Michelle Beardshire, she uh, works for uh, Clark Public Utilities. Um, yeah. She also founded a neighborhood association in East Vancouver. She's um, a big advocate for disabled... She's a big advocate for the disabled community too, and and uh, disabled uh, accessibility rights. Mm. And so, um, she she is in a wheelchair herself, and uh, kind of interesting story there. She was an athlete in Camus, mm. and she got in. I think she got in a car accident, and she, when she was younger, and and it kind of destroyed her her athletic career. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So you guys obviously were able to get these two on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were both there at election night. I mean, a lot of the candidates who ran showed up at the county building to get the official results. Mm, as is tradition. Yeah, but not not a, not Maureen McGoldrick. <laughs> no. no, and Maureen, she's also in a, a sort of a medical scooter because she has a broken foot right now. Ah, poor lady. Yeah, and and um, I actually, the day before we published that story, I was walking through Esther Short Park and I happened to run into her. Wow. wow. Um, but she mm. didn't want to talk. If you if you were listening to this, please come talk to us. We would yes, Maureen, if you're listening, we we would still love to talk to you. We just want to know how you did it, and we want to know more about you. And uh huh. So what I want to talk about is probably the biggest election that wasn't on the ballot, and that is the Port of Vancouver uh, race for the Port of Vancouver con commissioner race between Don Orange and Chris Green. Um, I don't know how closely you guys follow this, but I follow, I, my, one of my responsibilities is to cover the port, so I was pretty aware. Um, for those of you that are interested in following this race, the reason why it wasn't included on this ballot was because the third candidate, she dropped out right around the fourth week of, or the third week of May. And so, in a state like this where there's a top two primary, the top two people automatically move on to the November ballot. And uh, this is a race that is <laughs> this is a race that I think for a lot of people is really a s about the Vancouver Energy Oil Terminal. The people who don't want that terminal, 
they're backing Don Orange because he is very against that terminal, has been for a long time, and is campaigning on that. Whereas his opponent is a... He likes to say that he he's okay with it so long as it's going to be done safely because they're going to move that oil anyways and it's going to go somewhere, so it might as well come to Vancouver where we can have control over how it's managed. They can make the make the companies do it as safely as possible and we can re reap the financial benefits. And that this race has really lined up pretty interesting. It's become kind of a proxy war over supporting the terminal or not and like uh, business interests and also like environmental interests kind of stacking on opposite sides of the table. Well, I'm wondering, Damien, because these have been, I understand that these races have been pretty sleepy in the past. Oh, and yeah. I'm wondering with this race, is there any other differences between the candidates besides uh, the, the oil terminal? That's a great question. Um, so as people, yes, and Chris Green is from East Vancouver. He's lived over there forever, and he's a pretty big figure on that side of town. He's, he's very active in his church. He's very active, I believe, in uh, business communities over there. And the, um, he was a big face in the uh, Evergreen School District as well. He, he didn't hold any office for the district or anything, but he was big in like fundraisers and things like that for him. Don Orange, is he works on this side of town, and he didn't even live in the district the district initially he had to move to it rent an apartment in the district before filing day so he could run there legitimately but his office is here in downtown and it is in the ports taxing district um, the differences between them is green is trying to stay away from the issue he's trying to make the terminal a non-issue and he wants to talk about bringing businesses to town and creating apprenticeships for like students uh, that could work with companies within the ports district and uh, you know focusing a lot on development. Whereas Don Orange is very gung-ho about making the port more transparent and voting down this terminal. And he wants to talk a lot about green jobs that can come to town and green energy projects that can happen here. Those are probably the biggest differences, I would say. So have you heard anything about people's idea of how this race is going to go. Can you give us any idea of who might no, come out on top? It's so tough because the thing is, it's like orange is or green is clearly the candidate backed by the oil companies and the people who want the terminal built. The labor, what I think is really interesting is the Republicans have donated to him and they are outspokenly in favor of green and also outspokenly against orange. So they're on one side, but also standing in that same camp is uh, the trade unions and the shipping unions. Those those are guys that usually solidly support democratic projects, or I would even say needs to be not Republican causes. But in this case, they're on the same side of the fence. Tesoro, the oil company, also had gave him a huge chunk of change for his campaign. Um, but the point I'm getting at here is a lot of people think that this, uh, a, a lot of people are like throwing their hands up because people who watched the last election that got Eric LeBrant on there, they saw him get rode into, he rode into office on a wave of oil terminal opposition. And people think that that very possibly could happen with Don Orange again, because it's becoming clear that this this current commission is not going to reject this terminal. So, um, but the real question is, is are outside, are, there's a lot of people watching this race, even outside of this town. So what people are wondering is, are outside financial influences going to come in and just dump a crap load of money into this race? And if they do, they're probably going to do it for green. And is that going to be enough to help get him into office? 
It's a big question right wow. now. Well, I was hoping we could back up just a second with, with this. Um, so what can, what is the commission's role with approving this, uh, this terminal and what, where are we at with the process and how will the composition of the, the commission uh, affect the, the, the final fate of the, of the terminal? That is a great question. So the Port of Vancouver has a lease with Tesoro Savage Vancouver Energy that um, automatically renews every three months. And there's a clause in there that says either party can walk away from the lease with like a third, so long as they give a 30 day notice in advance and they can walk away for whatever reason. Well, and that's what people want. The people who don't want this terminal want the port to do just that. But that's not gonna happen with this current commission. Jerry Oliver is solidly in favor of the project. Um, Brian Wolf moans and laments about how sad he is that this has divided the community so much. But he's also, he says very specifically that he believes that Vancouver Energy deserves to have the process seen through for them. So he's a soft yes. And the only guy who is against it is Eric LeBrant. Again, the guy I just mentioned that rode the wave of opposition in. And he, he lives in the neighborhood just north of the, yeah, north of the port. And so he doesn't want this thing. He's afraid of the health impacts and the potential destruction and all this stuff. So anyway, this is the clearest and fastest way to make this terminal go away. And in the minds of the people who are against it, if they can get Don Orange in there, presumably the first thing he and Eric LeBrant are going to do is move to get this lease canceled. The project goes away. That is that, potentially, most likely. I'm going to put an asterisk there because who knows? They could sue, you know, things like that. But... Where the project is at now is it's being it's being evaluated by the Ener Energy Facility Siting Evaluation Council, which is a state board that looks at major environment or major energy projects in the state and tries to and then makes a recommendation to the governor whether they should be built just like yep, thumbs up, do it, or built with like certain restrictions, like well, build it but do this and this and this and this and then it'll be okay, or they say no, this is a crazy idea, don't do it. And the governor, from there, will take their recommendation and make a decision. There is no clear timeline when that's going to happen. The, statu the statute says this whole process has to be done in one year. This project is massive. 270,000 people commented on, on the draft environmental impact statement. They have a staff of five people, five full-time employees, and maybe a couple like part-time employees here and there evaluating this thing. It's been four years. There's no sign that they're going to have it done anytime soon. I really think that this thing is going to be going, they're going to be working on this well past the election. So, so maybe it'll be the next electoral cycle that they'll, they'll figure it out. Seriously. And here's the other thing is that's just the state side of it. So let's say hypothetically they get done this August. August 31st, they're, they're done. That's, that is the last day for this current extension that they have. Extension number six. Anyway, they say they get done there. They say, here you go, Governor Inslee, here's our recommendation, do something with it. He has 60 days to make a decision up or down. And so even if he approves it, because this is on a federal waterway, the Army Corps of Engineers has to start working on it, and they're not going to do anything until after the state gets all of its ducks lined up in, in a row. And then who knows how long it's going to take them to get stuff done. If this doesn't go the way Tesoro likes, they could sue. Or they could say, hey, we totally screwed up, and let's... Let's let us submit a whole new application. We'll just start this fresh. So then we're back at square one. There's potential for this thing to drag on for years, like absolutely for years. And even if it goes perfect, exactly how Tesoro wants it to go, it's still going to take years before this thing is built. So this is 
the only way to make this go away fast in a lot of people's minds is if Don Orange gets in office. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty That's crazy. quite a right? story. Things yeah. are really <laughs> heating up with this whole thing, and it's really come to this tiny, it's really funneled in this tiny little race, hasn't it? In, in a lot of respects. Yeah, it really has. Like I said at the start of this, this is a proxy war for a larger issue. And Green and his camp are trying to make it anything but that. But the people who are against this project are very quick to remind him, or very quick to say, like, they're voting for Don Orange for this reason. Well, and Inslee is such a proponent of environmental-friendly everything. Yeah, and so totally. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that he'd actually allow this thing to go through. Yeah, that's what a lot of people think, and that's what even a lot of people on staff at the Columbian think as well. Well, what has Inslee said about this? Nothing. And in fact, um, as I think he's even been quoted by, not by me, but by other news outlets in saying that like he's not going to say anything about it until FSEC is done. Well, what do you think about that? Just the radio silence there. I've, I think that's completely legitimate. Uh -huh. I mean, I, think it's, I really think it's his job to, um, to weigh what FSEC has to say about the whole thing. Because, you know, they're drafting these massive documents and going through all of the permits to help him make a decision. Um, but and what was funny to me, I, have, I had somebody from the Republican Party tell me that they've heard in Olympia that Inslee is for this thing. I can't imagine that. I, I really can't. So how many how many years does he have left in office? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head. Well, he just got reelected. He got elected last year. Reelected. Oh, okay. So so he's got time. He got till twenty twenty. He's it lines up with the presidential election. So he has whatever Inslee decides. Like I said, uh, Tesoro can appeal it. And they can take this to court. After this whole process is said and done, they can try to get the whole process restarted with whole new plans in place and say they're going to fix everything, every wrong that FSEC found. Or they can just sue and go to court. I mean, there are so many ways for this process to just keep going over and over and over and over. Well, can you give us an idea of how much Tesoro is spending on this? Yeah. Um, when I checked on that figure in last April... They had given, they had paid FSEC about $9 million to do the studies on it. And they pay this, they pay the Port of Vancouver, I think it's like a 100000 a month to uh, keep its lease active out on that property, which is all is a lot of money. But you have to keep in mind, this is a multi, multi-billion dollar oil company. The other thing that I think is really interesting about this whole project is that like it is a, it is a key link in their supply chain. Uh, from the oil fields in the Bakken because they've been investing in a lot of infrastructure in the Midwest to pump oil and transfer oil out of that region. And some of it is going to the East Coast, not just from the stuff they're producing, but they want to get more of it to the West Coast. And so they've been lining everything up to make that happen from work, from like investing in like trucking and um, storage areas out in the Midwest and working with BNSF and the other railways to haul this stuff for them. And then they have refineries up and down both coasts that they want to ship it to. And this terminal is a big key to making that stuff happen. So they got a lot of money riding on this. So do you, how much, I mean, how much money do you think they're willing to continue to put in this? Do you have any idea? Um, they have, Vancouver Energy, I have to, again, I want to clarify that this is, Vancouver Energy is created by Tesoro and Savage. So it's not just Tesoro. Let me, let me amend that previous statement. But they have shown no in indication whatsoever of wavering. In fact, the opposite. They have said that they are determined to see this process through the end. 
And I think that that statement is key because it's like, what kind of end are we talking about? In our minds, the end is when Inslee makes his decision. But that very well could not be the real end. Wow. So, yeah, that's going to be a race to yeah. watch during uh, the November election. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all I really have to say about that. Yeah. Um, anything else we need to go over? I don't think so either. All right, you guys. Well, thanks for coming on, and thanks, you guys, for listening to it. All right, so we are going to uh, talk about the upcoming weekends with the... Um, I don't even know what to call you because you do so many things around here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the, um, the events coordinator, the event planner. You yeah. are the, the aggregator of all things hip in Clark County. Just call me Ashley. I mean... Ashley. Ashley Swanson. <laughs> The all-knowing socialite, lady about the town, former horse-riding extra- extraordinaire. It's Ashley true. Swanson. It's true. Mm-hmm. The many, many mysteries. Um, so, this weekend, you can't miss the end of the Clark County Fair if you haven't gone yet. Is Dirk Bentley going to be there? No, he's not going to be there. Perfect. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's the end of the Clark County Fair this weekend. You have you know three more days to get as many elephant ears and cotton candies and spinny rides into your system before the end of summer. <laughs> have you been to the fair yet? No, not not yet. But I've been to the fair either. in the past. I know we're we're, we're neglecting our, our fairly duties. I know totally, totally. I I didn't pitch it this year. Mm-hmm. I actually like. There was no like formal meetings around mm-hmm. fair the fair in the newsroom this year, but I really wanted to do a story about just eating like the most bizarre foods and then like rating them accordingly. And you definitely can do that. I mean, there are many things that get fried at that fair. And then it's there's true. there's booths that have been at that fair, you know, for 15, 20 years that people mm-hmm. look forward to because they're like, we got to hit up like the Dairy Women's Milkshake booth or we got to go oh, get really? the sausages. Yeah. Like wow. there's some like... You know, because it's mostly volunteer run. And, oh, sure. Yeah, it's been family traditions. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah, God, the, what do you need to say about the fair? The fair has got so many things going on. It's it's crazy how much, um, like, if you're not into rides, well, then you can go check out, like, the 4-H barns with the horses and the goats and the pigs and the cows. If you're not into animals, you can go look at the um, the like art displays and like cooking displays and like the cheese making competitions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or they have Faircon, which is full of video games and, and board games mm-hmm. um, and different activities. There's also um, the cowboy experience. So you, like little kids can learn what you need to, what it takes to be a cow, cow person on the ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also like this weekend is uh, at the grandstands. They have entertainment at two and 7 PM. Mm-hmm. Um, so Saturday, Friday and Saturday, it's the tough trucks, which is like the demolition derby trucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people like sign up to enter their, their trucks into this to try to win prizes. So it's like super competitive and full of destruction. Mm-hmm. And then the fair ends on Sunday with the monster trucks. roaring through the grandstands so something for everybody at the fair i think the animals are my favorite part of the fair Mm -hmm. personally speaking yeah yeah they're cool and just all the weird things you can get out of breeding chickens it's true like there's crazy colors of chickens there's like the different fluffy levels of rabbits yeah uh-huh. To the point of like absurdity. Yeah, they it's look like, like is that a sheep or is that a yeah. damn rabbit? <laughs> what is that thing? <laughs> right, the llamas. The llamas are always really entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like the horseback riding and the draft horses, which are huge. Yeah. Um, there's even like the bee barn where you can go look at all the different honeybees. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. As long as you're not afraid of honeybees. <laughs> or allergic to them. <laughs> well, they're behind, like, they're in their little houses. Like, oh, okay. They're not just flying around the barn. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really funny. <laughs> just come in and check out our bees. <laughs> it's like swarming everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's hilarious too that they do um, eating contests at the fair as well. So uh, on I didn't know that. Yeah, on Saturday there will be a cheeseburger eating contest. Oh, why am I not in that? <laughs> you could probably still sign I up. Eat so many cheeseburgers. You could probably win it. I think there are cash prizes for for participants. So. Really? Yeah, and then Sunday is pie eating contest. Mm, mm. Um, and both of those are I think start at one at the the community stage so nothing epitomizes american down-home opulence like pie eating contests right. at I the mean, county fair yeah exactly it's 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 good old american traditions you know it's really amazing to me that fairs have survived in this world of so much diverse hmm. recreational opportunities and just entertainment possibilities mm-hmm. out there the fair the freaking county fair anywhere you go is still such a significant draw because there's nothing else that really fills that hole of just like you know kind of kitschy but really fun it just you know it has that childlike wonder to it Mm -hmm. it has that getting into like the roots and you know it's been something that's happened in america for you know Mm -hmm. over a hundred years so yeah i feel like it really captures something like like an echo of what americans like to define ourselves as Mm -hmm. that probably doesn't exist for most of us anymore but we like to imagine we are still a part of it yeah that down home home baked homegrown home harvest and a home cooked thing right and you are you can still see your neighbors and your community members and see recognizable faces as you're wandering through yeah. you know the barns and the the fields yeah um what's crazy is next year the clark county fair will turn 150 years old Oh my God! Are you yeah. serious? Yes. Wow. Yes. Huh. So that'll that'll be a big year next year. It will. They're gonna yeah. have big pigs there. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, but if you aren't interested, or if you've already gone to the fair, don't worry. Also, this weekend is the Vancouver Brewfest in Esther Short Park. So that's Friday, nice. Friday and Saturday. It's probably like the best way to kind of taste all the different um, breweries and kind of local. Um, beverage makers that are happening in Clark County because mm-hmm. there's been a big brewery boom oh, in, in Vancouver and Clark County. Not only County. a big brewery boom, brewery boom. God, that is hard to say. Tongue twister. But also a big brewery beer fest boom. Yes. This is what number three or something like that yeah. that we've had this year. Yeah. So this one's pretty fun because they they do bring a lot of people out. Um, I think there's over thirty or forty breweries participating, and I think everyone is bringing at least two um, kind of summer brews as mm. well. There's going to be um, giant beer ping pong or beer pong. It's they they call it bear pong because it uses a very large ball and giant buckets. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, in the lawn. Um, but yeah. Do you ev- have to drink like the whole bucket? I don't think that, I think it's just water in the bucket. Oh, okay. So like. I mean, that's how you play beer pong. It's know. true, but I think, I think it's just water because mm-hmm. that would be, that one, that'd be ridiculous actually. So are you going to go to the brew fest or are you going to go to the fair? Yeah, either one. Um, I'm definitely kind of planning on because they are very unique mm-hmm. community oriented 
um, events, which are fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cool that they're doing something different at the Brew Fest, with, like having that big weird beer pong thing. Yeah. Anything else going on? With that? Uh, sometimes they have musicians and stuff. And what's cool is part of the proceeds from from ticket sales, which tickets are about like uh, seventeen dollars if you buy them in advance, to about thirty seven at the door. Mm-hmm. But you get like tokens and and um, a mug, and it works for both days if you want to oh, go cool. Friday and Saturday. Um, but what's great is the proceeds go to um, veteran nonprofits, including um, Battle Buddies, which helps um, get connect service members with service dogs. Oh. Um, and then a couple other uh, disabled uh, veterans groups as well. And Second Chance Companions, I think, is the other one. That's cool. Um, so you're drinking for a cause. Yeah, which is always nice. Yeah, um, and important. Mm-hmm. And then if we're going to keep up with, with American traditions, um, there is the drive-in movie Spectacular at the Portland Expo Center mm-hmm. uh, starting today through uh, Sunday. Drive-in movie Spectacular? Are yes. they like actual drive-ins? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, I freaking love drive-ins. So they, they kind of are bringing back that tradition of a drive-in, but they're giving it a little bit of a modern twist because in addition to hearing it over your radio, they're also going to put speakers out in the... Um, uh, parking lot so if you want to take your bike over or even walk across the bridge to the expo center so you question can. are these going to be like megaphone speakers or are they going to be like the little like handheld size ones that are like sitting on a post next to the parking spot i'm not sure okay. but i know like they definitely are trying to incorporate all different kinds of of mobile ability into Rad. the expo center i am stoked on this my girlfriend's gonna be stoked on this well let me tell you what the the friday saturday and sunday movies are please say big lebowski please say big lebowski. no big lebowski that was last year oh they had it last year yes why didn't i go i don't know i'm an idiot you didn't listen to the podcast no <laughs> that didn't <laughs> exist um no friday will be harry potter and the sorcerer's stone take it or leave it saturday will be greece Take it. Leave it. Leave I mean, it. and there's going to be sing-alongs in the in the parking lot with that one. Oh, yeah. It's going to be ridiculous. Yes. Anyway. And then Sunday is Caddyshack. Oh, I would definitely go see Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. All right. I think I know what I'm doing this Sunday. Right. So doors or gates open around 630. There's going to be music, activities, food, all that fun stuff before the, the screenings. Um, tickets are about 13 to 15 per car mm-hmm. or $5 per bike or um, pedestrian. Have you ever been to a uh, drive-in? Uh, yes, they're yeah. fun. Oh, yeah, they're so fun. Yeah, just having like the the sunlight, you know, as it fading out and the screens getting brighter and brighter and totally. Oh, they're they're a rare breed. Oh yeah, they're a totally dying art. I mean, mm-hmm. they're t- they're I think that they're becoming like they're like old barns, mm-hmm. you know, like a bit of an American relic from like a bygone era mm-hmm. that you still only find in like rural places. Mm-hmm. Land values are just. I wonder why they died out. What killed? If any of you listening to this can tell me what killed the drive-in movie theater and you don't want me just to have to go Google this, I would love to know what the answer is. I mean, I would suspect that a lot of people wanted the cool, fancy new functions of, of fancy cinemas. Like, you had all the, the Dolby around sound, you had all these air-conditioned spaces. Like, I mean, I would track the rise of movie cinemas and like, IMAX theaters versus mm. the decline of drive-ins. That, that's very possible. My thought was uh, land, like land value mm-hmm. in urban areas, mm-hmm. and also the drug war. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I would place it more on uh, movie theaters and TV. Ah, all right. <laughs> Yours sounds more reasonable than mine does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then uh, two more events for this weekend. Okay. The Washugal Arts Festival is happening on Saturday. Okay. Um, so it's a great excuse to go out to Washugal. 
it's happening in the Reflection Plaza. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll have about 27 regional artists and a lot of great artists actually hide, um, or not hide, but they live <laughs> in in the um, Columbia Gorge and in the Washougal area. Oh. So you kind of can find some really unique things and they all have crafts and music and like children's activities and it's just kind of a fun community event. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And then um, also on Saturday is the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. It kind of got um, a little hidden because of the upcoming solar eclipse, Uh but it is happening on Saturday, and there's two sort of um, star watching parties that are happening. Oh, cool. So OMSI is hosting a big star party in Rooster Rock State Park, which is farther in the gorge on the Oregon side. Yes. Um, Mm-hmm. And so that'll be around nine and they'll have like astronomers there to tell you about the constellations and looking at the the meteors. If you mm-hmm. don't know about the Perseid meteor shower, it happens kind of every year. It's been going on since I think this late July, start of August, and mm-hmm. it kind of runs for two weeks as, as the giant meteor passes us and all the little shavings fall off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Mount St. Helens at the Science and Learning um, Institute at Coldwater Creek they're um, hosting a star party as well from like 5 to 11. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they'll have activities and music on the mountain. That's and, awesome. Yeah, uh, guided hikes and things. Wow. I, I think that's about $10. It's donation, so they just want you to donate. And then Rooster uh-huh. Rock just has a $5 car parking fee. But uh-huh. yeah, if you want to want to go see some stars uh-huh. i mean to really see them you've got to get out of the light pollution mm-hmm. and it's so it's so hard to escape it i mean you can see you can see portland from st helens at night right which sucks but that's how it is well and it's also going to be a little hard too because um the moon will be i think at um like uh whack be waxing or something so there'll be a lot of moonlight that'll kind of oh, really? make it a little bit harder to see so instead of seeing like 80 meteors a minute you might see like 40 meteors a minute oh dear well that's like <laughs> half the volume <laughs> right wow. only 40 stars falling a minute totally darn that's really depressing <laughs> yeah i hope like the, the all the f- forest fire haze that we've got right now doesn't inhibit the observation mm-hmm. abilities too much yeah we'll have to see um and then going and kind of is a nice segue to next weekend because I think one of the biggest events will be bum, bum, bum. <laughs> the Great American Eclipse, as yep. they're calling it, Solar Eclipse. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you haven't picked up anything in the newspaper lately, that is Monday, August 21st. Mm-hmm. Um, starts, I think, around 9 a.m. in the yep, morning. Yep, 9, 12, yes. if I remember right. Yeah, and goes to about 10.30 yeah, that but sounds pretty It's close. like a full hour, but the peak is like at There's, 10, 19 or something. Yeah. The real the real event itself is the crescendo, if you will, is going to be like more, just a little more than a minute long. Right. And I just want to interject here. I think we're going to do a special podcast on this. Oh, cool. I'm advocating for that. But mm-hmm. for those of you guys listening to to this, if you're going to go somewhere to go see the, the eclipse, are you even thinking that you might want to go somewhere to go see the eclipse? You either need to do it as early as possible or don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. They, the tra- traffic people from WASDOT and ODOT are just, they're predicting the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So many people jamming the roads to try to get down to Salem to see this. I mean, I heard that like ODOT is predicting like five hour traffic jams between Salem and Portland. Yeah. Five 
hours. <laughs> well, and it's going to start early, too, because a lot of people are coming in, you know, Friday, Thursday night to go out and camp for the weekend because totally. it's a Monday event. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have some really weird traffic patterns leading into that weekend, mm-hmm. past that weekend. So it's it's going to be weird. I think a lot of um, organizations are treating it kind of like a natural disaster mm-hmm. <laughs> with that sort of prep of like, we need everything ready. Reasonably so, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just it's something that hasn't really happened in this era so you can try to predict of what it's going to be like but no one really knows because uh-huh. we've never what it's been a hundred years since the solar eclipse went over the united states well, there was one in 79 right. but it's been a hundred years since one has gone like from one coast to the other yes. like this yes. yeah 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 it's super it's gonna be nuts right and there's gonna be viewing parties all over town for this it's too, true right? it's true yeah um i think the fort vancouver is kind of doing one um so you can go out onto the parade grounds and and look at it and stuff oh cool yeah and then a, a bunch of libraries are doing events and giving away um the special eyeglasses and such the glasses yeah gotta have your glasses do you have special glasses not yet but uh, i might either. steal some of tom's in the newsroom mm, he's okay. got it he's got a hoard if you need somebody to distract him while you do <laughs> if you get me a pair uh-huh. i will totally like i'll pretend to choke and <laughs> <laughs> like, wait think, for Tom to come over and save I me. I think he'll just give you a strange look, to be honest. <laughs> he might. <laughs> Not my problem. <laughs> just walk away. Um, but the other cool events that are happening next weekend is a new festival called uh, Viva Vancouver. Mm. So the Latino Youth Conference is kind of putting on a fundraising event to celebrate like salsa dancing and music and drink. And that'll take place in uh, Vancouver Landing, which is down by the waterfront. Oh, cool. Um, That sounds really fun. Yeah, it's for, I think, 21 and older, unfortunately. But it sounds like it'll be a really fun kind of... Or fortunately. Or fortunately. Depends on your perspective, of course. As a a childless, like, uh, 30-year-old... I am very happy when kids aren't always there. Mm-hmm. Sorry, parents. That's how I feel. <laughs> right. So that'll be a new event, and I think it sounds really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like when new events start up. Yeah, totally. Totally. I feel like Vancouver is getting some new creative energy to it. That yeah. is, it has been lacking as a... Of, a sterile franchise embracing subdivision of Portland. <laughs> yeah, no, I think people are really embracing their hometown and wanting to have stuff that they can claim as Vancouver's. Couve life. <laughs> or something. Yeah, or something. Yeah. Probably not what I just said. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the weekend after that is uh, the the Vancouver um, Wine and Jazz Festival. And that's... Um, oh, that's classy. Yeah, it's celebrating so 20 classy. years of wine and jazz in, in Esther Short Park. Wow. Um, so, lots of quafting and chortling, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, and they've got a pretty good lineup. Like, a lot of nice, like... Um, jazz musicians, drummers, guitarists, but also, like, blues singers and, like, hmm. um, blues musicians as well. So it's it's a nice mix. Oh, cool. Yeah. That'll be rad. God, that is a good rundown of events. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're approaching the end of August, and mm-hmm. we're getting to the, the start of the school year, so it's kind of like, these are your last summer hurrahs. Totally. To enjoy. So totally. get I mean, out there. Yeah. Or just don't and sit home with your Xbox and donuts and watch netflix and be a loner that's always an option but what are you going to share on social media that you know this was my awesome summer look how awesome i am uh i I think your negative attitudes (laughs) and your displeasure of the world around you (laughs) that's my theory yeah so whatever you want to (laughs) do yeah go do it yeah well thank you for coming on and giving us such a good rundown
All right, that's a podcast. Real quick, I just wanted to expand a little bit on that um, that statistic I brought up earlier. If I did, or if did not vote was a candidate in the 2016 election, so this was a these are some facts and figures that some wonky data nerds on the internet came up with and uh, aggregated together, and it it is accurate at least of January 17th, 2007. But according to this. Um, in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, quote, did not vote. If that were a candidate, it would have overwhelmingly won the, uh, the presidential election. In fact, it would have won 471 electoral college votes. Clinton would have won 51 and Trump would have won 16. And to the po- more to the point, there's only eight states plus Washington, D.C. that had a high enough voter turnout where one of the actual candidates would have won more votes than, quote, did not vote. And that's Iowa and Wisconsin voted for Trump, Colorado, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Washington, D.C. went for Clinton. And those are the only states. And Washington, D.C. But think about that. 42 states did not have a high enough voter participation where the actual candidates in the election would have would have won. Now, I get it. This was it is no secret. I mean, this last election sucked. Nobody, hardly anybody you talked to actually really liked either of the two candidates that were in this race. I get it. I totally get it. But I really wonder how that played um, on the down ticket races below that. I mean, national politics being what they are, suck all the energy out of the room. And they are by far, like far and away, you know, the biggest draw for elections. Presidential years are huge. I'm going to put that in quotation marks, huge. But, um, you know, those state house races, your county races, your city races, your school district races, your bond measures, the ballot initiatives, those things have much bigger and much more direct impact on our lives. And I'm very concerned that, you know, if, with such a low voter turnout, um, it really makes me worry that we are just not putting enough energy or effort into paying attention to what is going on in our communities. I think it's a very unhealthy attitude just to throw your hands up and say, I didn't vote because I don't like anybody. Well, you might not at the national stage, but man, what about the things going on in your town? And again, I am a hypocrite because I didn't vote in this last election. And I am de- honestly, I am deeply conflicted about the fact that I don't do it. And anyway, I'm done ranting to you and both to myself sitting alone in this little studio that we have in the back of the back of the Columbian. And um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We're going to come out with another one um, here in a couple weeks. We might even do a special episode. If you love the show, hate the show, want to hear more of the show, or just want to tell me how your day is going, uh, please feel free to get in touch. You can reach us at podcast at Columbian.com, or you can just reach out to Katie or myself on Twitter or on Facebook or Columbian email addresses. You guys know where they are. You can even call my desk if you want. I'm a very friendly guy. We'll chat it up a little. You can find this podcast just about anywhere you find your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We post it straight to the face or straight to the Columbian's website every every Thursday when we have a show to do. So it's all over the place. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I appreciate your time, and we will see you later.